BlockWorks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. I am joined by Joseph Wang, former senior Fed trader, and Andy Constan, veteran macro investor and author of the Damped Spring Report. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Nice to be here, Jack. Pleasure to be here. And pleasure to finally meet you, Andy. You're a great resource on Twitter. I've learned a lot from following you. So it's really a pleasure to have you here. Same. Both of you recognize that interest rates are obviously important. Oh, the Fed is going to hike by 50 basis points or 75 basis points. And the media definitely recognizes that, uh, me being a member of the media. And I think a lot of people focus on that because it's the easiest to understand. But your both of your work really focuses on the level of reserves in the system, uh, which is controlled by the Federal Reserve, the size of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, when it's increasing, that's quantitative easing, what the Fed was doing during 2020 and 2021. When it's decreasing like it is now, that's called quantitative tightening. And that quantitative tightening actually, as of September, uh, has reached a higher level of now $95 billion of uh, assets, the goal, the cap uh, being, that's that's the reduction of the, the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, I want to start by asking you, Andy, in what way does the Federal Reserve's balance sheet impact asset prices? Now that the Fed's balance sheet is smaller, why might that be less favorable for assets than, let's say, 2020 or 2021, when the Fed's balance sheet was still increasing? Yeah, so there's... There's two schools of thought regarding the um, balance sheet, um, and I'm going to stay away from Joe's specialty regarding how the mechanics of the reserves work, because I've basically learned everything about that from him. Um, but as it relates to the um, two basic ways that people consider the balance sheet, one is the, the stock method and the other is the flow method. Um, Green, uh, sorry, Bernanke was very big on the size of the balance sheet being the important thing. And the Bank of England, which is what I um, ascribe to, is uh, more interested in the flow. And so what for me, the important thing isn't that the um, balance sheet is of a certain size, but that it's um, either increasing or decreasing. And how is that being um delivered to uh, the financial, what's the impact on the financial markets? And, um, you know, my framework for that is that um, when the Treasury buys, well, sorry, when the Fed buys a um, um, U.S. Treasury in the open market, the seller um, now has money and wanted Treasuries, but was convinced based on the price to exit. And they look to the curve or next asset that they want to own. Um, and it's typically a more risky asset than the Treasury's bond, when the Fed's buying a 30-year, often to a corporate bond. And um, the seller of somebody has to sell them that corporate bond. And in the US, I think the mechanism really worked well while it didn't in other countries um, because of our share repurchase culture. The seller could be a corporation, and that corporation would then use the proceeds, and the proceeds were often used to repurchase shares. And so then those shares were repurchased from somebody who didn't really want to sell them and so bought a riskier stock, maybe a meme stock. And then the meme stock seller didn't want to sell a meme stock, so maybe they bought whatever's riskier than a meme stock, a SPAC or a Bitcoin or a whatever it might be, something. I don't, I, I don't play out at that space. And then ultimately, the seller of the the um, crypto maybe uh, buys a Lambo, and that stimulates the economy. So it's a loose way of stimulating the economy. And the reason why QE was done is because the Fed ran out of, and all the rest of the world ran out of options. They couldn't stimulate lower interest rates below zero. So they had to use a policy that really doesn't work to slate um, the economy directly. Um Rate hikes do that well and have done that throughout the whole history of the Federal Reserve and other central banks. Um, but QE was used in that way. And what it did was inflate every asset in the way I just described. Um, and ultimately, through a sort of wealth effect impact, the cash that they spent got into the um, real economy. Um, 
but typically only from wealthy people who had been selling stocks. Um, and so QT works the opposite way. There are treasury and the, um, the, now the Fed um, is going to let one of the mechanics work. The Fed is going to let one of their treasuries uh, mature. And instead of using the proceeds to buy another treasury, they're going to buy nothing um, and reduce their balance sheet. And the, to pay that off, to pay that bond off, the U.S. Treasury has to issue the, a bond, um, and that bond needs to be bought by the private sector. And they don't want to buy bonds today. They want they were happy with what they had, and so they have to sell something to buy the bond, and that starts at the riskiest asset and then ends up back to the. Um, um, you know, the impact on lowering the risk premium across all financial assets. And it comes from somebody at the, at the riskiest part of the spectrum deciding that instead of um, spending on a Lambo, they're going to save their money. Um, and so, again, the QT has a very weak transmission mechanism to economic activity, but a very strong transmission act. Um, um, mechanism to um, financial markets. It deflates financial markets while mildly deflating the economy. And QE inflates financial assets while only mildly inflating the economy. Um, and so it's not a surprise that when the economy needed uh, to be slowed down, um, aggressive hikes were done, uh, began and then got super aggressive. Because that works to slow the economy down, while QT really just leans on financial assets. It's worth doing, and the Fed needs to do it, in my view, principally so that they can get the balance sheet to a size that in the next downturn, they can once again repurchase assets if for some reason interest rates fall to zero again. But I think that's the play, and that's the back and forth that's happening, but for us as investors, um, understanding whether uh, there's a tailwind to assets versus a headwind to assets is important when you're thinking about investing in a portfolio of assets. Rate hikes are important when you're thinking about and whether they're effective in slowing the economy are very useful if you're trying to look at a portfolio and say, should I overweight bonds or equities? Because if you're going to slow the economy and kill inflation, you, you're, and that's not priced, bonds are a better deal than equities. But And so the rate hike mechanism is in an interesting part in the way it flows through to the economy. And I think that's a critical conversation. But um, the QEQT bit is about portfolios of assets. And pretty much since December when the Fed mentioned that they were considering the balance sheet and Jan 3rd when minutes came out, um, all assets have fallen. And it hasn't been because of hikes. It's been because of this quantitative tightening being announced and people front running it saying, I don't want to own assets if assets are going to be deflated. I agree with, with Andy that QE and QT have much larger impacts on the financial markets than the real economy. And that's kind of how, what the, how the Fed works. It works through financial conditions, which include the asset markets, and indirectly through those financial conditions impact the real economy. Now, I think it's a really good discussion to have how this actually feeds into the real economy. There are many channels, and I'm sure we'll talk about them later. But one of them, of course, is through the wealth effect, as you suggested, Jack. So, like Andy mentioned, someone somewhere was having a lot of money. Maybe they went and they bought a Lambo. And uh, now, if we look at the crypto space, if we looked at the more speculative things like the SPACs, they've deflated a lot, and those people are not buying Lambos anymore. And I think there's a good graph from Bloomberg showing how used Rolex, price, used Rolex prices have come down. So that's basically what the Fed is trying to do. As you suggested, Jack, they're trying to deflate asset prices a little bit, they would say tighten financial contingents. That means the, let's say the consumers have less wealth to spend. And if they have less wealth to spend, it's likely that they're not able to afford higher prices. And that's how you get inflation lower. 
Um, of course, there are other channels as well. And, and an interesting idea that I've often heard, and I don't know what Andy thinks about how Andy thinks about this, is that there may be some asymmetry in how rate hikes slow activity and rate um, rate cuts stimulus stimulate activity, and that partially has to do with the fact that a large amount of debt in the U.S. can be refinanced. It's mortgage debt. So when you cut rates, everyone gets locked into a very low mortgage. But when you hike rates, um, on the margins, the next mortgage borrower is going to have to pay higher rates. But that huge stock of outstanding mortgages is already locked into a lower rate. And so perhaps it becomes less sensitive to higher rate, higher rates in terms of slowing economic activity. Uh, Andy, perhaps, perhaps you want to comment on uh, Joseph's point there, but I also want to turn you. So now that we have a framework, I want to uh, quote some of your damn spring report. And this was actually months ago, so the data must be much worse. Uh, you say, since quantitative tightening was announced, unlevered funds have sold $145 billion worth of S&P 500 futures, the biggest in history. Meanwhile, commercial banks sold over $100 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities over the past five months. Quote, it is unprecedented. Uh, so that was months ago. Uh, how much worse has it gotten? And also, could you just uh, explain how the, the the level of reserves now that it's going down? You know, how is that reverberating with regards to asset prices? Yeah, so that was I think my six twenty nine report or six twenty eight report, and that was when I was calling for observing a great deleveraging through the data. Um, long only investors. That stat was about equity long only managers um, had sold a lot. Um, of equities. Banks have sold a lot of bonds. Um, and there was a great portfolio deleveraging that had occurred. And um, so I've worked for uh, many funds, and a couple of them use techniques around vol targeting. And so what that really means is that when you have a portfolio of assets, and you look forward and say, you know, my investors are looking for a 10% annual standard, you know, annual standard deviation of uh, of my of returns for this portfolio. Right. And then you say, um, are you guys with me? Yeah. And then you say, um, yeah. okay, what happens um, to the, that port? What drives the volatility of that portfolio? The number one thing is its size. So if it's, $100, billion, $100 million, and um, the easiest way to cut its forward volatility is to cut $10 million of the risky assets and to put it in cash. So now the question is, how do you target a volatility? You have to have a future outlook for um, what each individual asset in the portfolio, how volatile it's going to be, and importantly, um, it's um, the, the covariance of each of the of the assets to each other, um, and so what I had observed in June then was that. Uh, so what I what I've done is I built what I think people use to set their next three months of leverage. So I have a model that that says what is you know how should I have. $80 million, $90 million, $100 million, or $110 million at risk. Um, and that gives me an expectation of what a portfolio should have done to be prepared for the future risk. And so on 629, it looked very grim. We were near the bottom on equities, or it just made a small bottom on the most the bottom so far um, this cycle on equities. Equity vol was high. Fixed income vol has been astronomical. And the correlation has broken down, where, uh, where for most of our lives, daily correlation uh, between bonds and stocks has been fairly negative. Um, and thus, owning a bond and stock portfolio is diverse, creates diversification. And that number had gotten to a point where there was no correlation between bonds and stocks. Some might think that bonds and stocks became correlated. They, they really didn't in the data, but they were certainly a lot less negatively correlated. And so that adds to future portfolio um, diversification benefit. And so my number was at predicted was an unsustainable level of 
expected future volatility of a portfolio. And because it was at that level, to be prepared for such a thing. And so my analysis said that, plus some other QE, QT issuance flows that we can get to later, looked like it was a good time to buy assets. And so that created my, you know, my pivot into being long bonds and stocks. And I don't know if I got long gold, but assets in general. And um, I rode that through um, until 8-1 when I saw something else. To answer your direct question, that was the low of that data point. Not the not. It hasn't gotten worse. It's gotten better. No, the the um, um, futures sold by institutions, the hundred and forty-five billion dollars that equity institutions had sold, that was the low. They've been buying ever since. Well, that's not true. They they bought through July, levering up as I expected. Because the their metric delevered well, so portfolios all of a, they had peaked in terms of their volatility, um, and so those fell. And for for those of you who are following a lot at home, Andy basically bought around the low and rolled the huge rally <laughs> upwards towards uh, towards recently. So he 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 caught a huge huge uptrend. I, I was early on the way in, and I was early on the way out, and yeah. you can't get the top. But it was a good range, right? It was a good, good time for damp spring. Never buy at the bottom, never sell at the top. That's uh, that's how you make good money. I have a question on that. So I, these models, vault targeting fund models, are obviously very effective. But over time, we also see a lot of different players come into the space. Uh, for example, in the equity space, you have these target date funds. You have these, you know, basically giant passive investors. And um, let's say in the bond space, you also have Fed involvement. You have, uh, let's say foreign sovereign funds or even the commercial banks. So these guys, they all approach the market very differently from from your vol targeting private investors. Do they, have you sensed that they change the structure of the markets such that it's, 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 yeah. So it's interesting you say that. Um, Anybody who's investing, there are players that I think deliver alpha to the market that are that have a non-economic reason to um, participate in markets, central banks, governments, occasionally um, sovereign wealth funds have another agenda. Um, But a true investor, every investor is a vol targeter because it's just human nature. When you're experiencing very high volatility, particularly when it's on the downside, you are more likely to shrink your portfolio. And when you're not experiencing volatility and you're, you know, grinding higher every day, like we've seen in many cycles, particularly during QE, the natural human reaction is to lever up. And so I believe everyone is a vol targeter in some way. And so now the question is, what's their model like? And there are models that run... Um, using short-term implied volatilities that are super noisy. And, you know, there's constant daily adjustment to the vol targeting. And to the extent that those are dominant, that can have an impact on the market. To the extent that everyone is a vol targeter, you then expand sort of maybe exponentially down the the effect of each player in terms of their vol targeting agenda. Um but there's too many people that are purchased. There are too many long-only investors that purchase hedges or that use portfolio insurance techniques of selling when the market falls and buying when it goes back up in order to minimize drawdown. Um, to not think that the general, that the market basket is vol targeting in some sense. Now, what their vol expectations are and what their return risk adjusted return on that vol that they are targeting, that varies. And so you can see a massive deleveraging of long-only funds, and somebody has to buy what they're selling. And so they must have a different vol target or a different sharp when they are buying what these people are selling. And so look at each of those sides. Andy, why would funds sell or short S&P 500 futures 
rather than just selling the stocks they own? Is it, is it just tax reasons or is there another re- reason? I wrote a thread about that describing what – there was a big a big um, kerfuffle on Twitter about the extremely large hedge fund short futures position, um, which um, I addressed. And they are short a lot of futures. Um, the long-only funds are um, – have since the data series has been in existence, which the, the the most recent version is since 2009, long only funds are only long. They've never been short. And so what they sold is what they were long, not what they are short. And so if your question is why do um, long only funds own futures, it's a couple of reasons. The first being that um, futures allow them to have cash to meet redemptions um, and every day there are some inflows and outflows to every mutual fund on the planet and every pension fund. And so you just want to be, have cash around. So you keep a little bit of futures. You know it's going to track well to your benchmark. Um, and, and then there's uh, this risk targeting. You want to own something super liquid so you can get to your risk target quickly. And, you know, so say you own, I don't know, call it 90% of the stocks you like or the assets you like. You own 10% futures. And so you tweak that when you need to make a risk adjustment or meet a redemption or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then you reset into the stocks you like with, uh, with when markets are liquid, when you can take it slowly, when there's nothing pressing that generates this you know, sort of risk off or risk on that is your primary objective for using futures. And by the way, that's another interesting idea. Um, that $145 billion left long-only funds with less than $50 billion of longs. And so you ask yourself, are they going to go short? Well, unless they do something they've never done before, and those reasons I just described, except for the, ri- the risk side, maybe, but they rarely go short anything. Um you know that they only have $50 billion to go. And so if they sell it all, then their selling is done. And so that's another thing to look at when you're looking at that data. Okay. Thanks for that, Andy. Uh, I just want to explain, I think, a few things that you said people own futures because they can have cash, and that's because you own futures on margin. It's not like you uh, pay cash. You you, you just are owed it, so you can have cash to meet redemptions. also on the correlation point, uh, yeah. So correlations between stocks and bonds uh, historically we think of it as negative. Like after the late 1980s, it's been quite negative. Now you're saying it's been a lot less negative. Uh, some people think it's positive, but you almost zero. Yeah, it's been zero. Um, and then yeah, also we have the correlations in the uh, in the equity market itself, where actually uh, realized correlations have been. I think a lot lower. You know, normally if if Apple goes down, another stock is going to go down, and that you know if Apple goes down, Microsoft goes down. But this year, because of energy, and I'm sure a lot of other reasons that I don't understand, uh, correlations have been uh, lower. So even though this year has been very volatile for individual stocks, if you own like Carvana or uh, Netflix or something, uh, the S and P 500 volatility has been less muted than uh, more muted than than single stock uh, volatility uh, a, a final yeah a, a final point about um, the vol targeting is that it can be very stabilizing for a single person's portfolio a single portfolio whether it's a large fund but in aggregate you know you can't really destroy volatility right so if I target a 10% volatility I'm going to be selling a lot of volatility when volatility is low and buying it back right when it's uh, uh, when it's high. So if, if there are only three investors in the world, you know, Andy, you, me, and Joseph, and all of us are targeting a volatility of 10 uh, and volatility is 20, that means we all have to sell. So we can get this sort of reflexive uh, um, sort of uh, uh, vicious cycle that feeds on itself, right? Yeah, that's a deal. If we all need to delever, somebody needs to take the other side that is willing to lever. And what they need, and this is where my risk premium framework comes into play. What they need is an enhanced return on risk. No one knows which way the market's going to go directionally, but risk premium defines 
the the expected return on risk and in order for the three of us to sell somebody is going to be need to receive an excess risk premium and we're going to pay for that in our selling by selling assets at lower prices that have no difference in expected return than they did at higher prices hey andy i i know risk premium features in your framework a lot can you talk a little bit about how you Define risk premium when you think about this. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation about that, um, and you know, I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't really look to try to. So it's undefined. Firstly, it's not observable, um, and there's lots of ways people sort of back into a risk premium, um, but I don't think any of that's really important. All it. All it really. What's really important is. Um, trying to determine which way risk premiums are going, because if they are contracting, um, that is when you want to own assets, you want to have owned assets at, and then have risk premiums contract, meaning owning assets is going to deliver a lower expected return on risk um, when risk premiums contract. And you own assets, so they must have improved in price. And when risk premiums expand, you want to be short assets or have no assets because the price is discounting so that the buyer receives a higher expected return. Um, so I focus on the shifts. Are, are we in a world in which risk premiums contract or are we in a world in which risk, risk premiums expand? And I have two drivers for that. We've just discussed one of the drivers, which is risk. It's called risk premium for a reason. And if the three of us want to get out because our expectations of future risk are high, we expect risk premiums to expand. Um, and so we want to get out because before they expand, which means the prices fall. Um, for equity people and for, for the majority of people that are probably listening to this, Risk premiums are the inverse of multiples in a very common sense way. So if you think we're, we're in a world of multiple contraction, that's the same as being in a world of risk premium expansion. Prices fall when risk premiums expand or multiples contract. So I mentioned one of the drivers, which is risk. And the other is a more relevant to the last 15 years than ever before, and particularly relevant for quantitative tightening, is that the supply of money that is looking to invest, call it savings, the supply of savings, and the supply of credit that allows savers to lever their investments um, is one side. And the supply, I know what people use supply and demand, but the supply of assets that are looking for savers to sell to shifts. In certain times, there is we've had a glut of savings, and that's been um, ex exacerbated by um, quantitative easing where the treasure, the Fed jumps in and buys assets that we all want because we have this savings glut um, and risk premiums contract and asset prices rise. Quantitative tightening is going to reduce demand, reduce the demand for financial assets. Then there's the supply of financial assets. And people tend to miss this um, idea in that when a corporation issues a bond, people think, wow, that's new supply, that's going to hit the market. Chances are the corporation is very quickly going to recycle that sale into some other asset. I mentioned they may buy back their stock, they buy, may buy another company. They're not just going to sit on the cash. Um, the government is a fairly unique case because of its its size. And this is critical to understand the next six months. Um, when we deficit spend, we borrow the money first, creating an, a, um, a supply shock that tends to expand risk premiums as those bonds get sold into the market. And then we distribute the money to people, to the private sector, 
And some of it goes to wages. Some of it goes to plant and equipment. Some of it depends on how it's, what form it takes. Um, you know, the stimmies were literally giving that cash to people in their bank account and they could immediately spend it in the real economy. And thus it was both stimulative to the real economy, offsetting the COVID um, crisis <coughs> and job loss and also stimulative to the financial asset market. If all that money had instantaneously been distributed to people and all those people happened to really prefer government bonds, there wouldn't have been any risk premium um, expansion because it would have been full circle. People would have, the government would have sold bonds, somebody would have bought them for a second, the money would have been distributed to people those people would have bought the bonds and everything would be fine. And it wouldn't have been inflationary. And it wouldn't have been inflationary. The problem is those stimmies went to, um, um, were spent. Now that spending ultimately gets handed to corporations as profits and holders of, com of base commodities as, um, you know, trans changing their oil into equity, into not equity, into cash. And it also gets handed in wages to people who then spend it, handing it to corporations, other wage earners, and commodity owners. Ultimately, all that money gets rolls through the economy but and ends up in two people's hands, corporations and um, commodity owners. And so they end up then buying, saving that money, and that tends to contract risk premiums. But that delay... The government issuing expands risk premiums absent quantitative easing. The delay as it rolls through to savers takes time and that contracts risk premiums. And now we're at a position where um, you can trade that, that flow. And when... So when the Treasury issues a ton of bonds, that increases risk premium because there's more collateral in the market. However, when the Federal Reserve is buying those same bonds at the exact same time, you sort of get a freebie. Uh, and you, you know, that's why some people say the Fed has been monetizing monetizing the debt. Joseph uh, rightly pointed out, uh, you uh, pointed out a very good trade uh, shortly after the, the bottom of asset prices uh, in, in later June, you uh, got bullish on stocks and bonds, which both uh, went up quite appreciably um, over the, the past, the next month and a half or, or two months. And all that sort of ended at, at Jackson Hole, uh, at the, I think one of the last days of August. Uh, and uh, so Andy, you, your framework that you laid out was called False Dawn. In other words, uh, over the next two months, you wrote this when asset prices were pretty close to their lows. And you said, over the next two months, I see a setup, or over the next short, short period of time, I see a setup for risk premiums to contract and asset prices to go up. And they did, but it's not a real dawn. It's a false dawn. Well, let me explain how that whole thing went. So the false dawn was the idea that quantitative tightening was going to ramp up. It also depended on a very unique circumstance in the second quarter where the U.S. Treasury had borrowed a ton of money and funded their checking account in the first quarter. Um, and they did that when quantitative easing was still going on, when taper was happening and the, and the Fed was still buying. They issued a ton of money. And then in, in this very high nominal growth that we're experiencing, delivered a shocking amount of tax revenue um, all year, but in particular lumpy in April. And so the second quarter... We act, I don't know if it technically we ran a, sur, a budget surplus, um, but we came, we did not need to finance any new money. We actually reduced the amount of debt outstanding in the government um, throughout the entire second quarter. And so that was a big deal when there was very little issuance of coupon paper, of bills, of anything, and any government payments were happening due to either the checking account, which they had pre-funded, or these tax revenues. And so that was very bullish assets. And that was also part of the 628 
um, thesis, which was there's no supply. Not only have, has everyone delivered, but there's also no supply. And so what I perceived is that on um, the next time the government was going to um, announce its issuance plans, which was on is called the quarterly refunding announcement, which happens in two phases. Um, in this case, it happened on August 1st and 3rd. Um, my thinking was that, that we're not going to see as good a time as, um, as we had. And so that supply was going to be announced for the third and fourth quarter was going to be above expectations. At the same time, quantitative tightening was going to double in September on September 1st. And so my outlook was that um, where there had been no supply, we were about to run into a very large supply. And so that's why I expected this false dawn was going to rally assets because of this relevering and the lack of selling by anyone, by the government in particular. Um, and then on 8-1, what happened? So I am shocked with, not shocked, it's just government acting the way they do. But I I was surprised that Mansion and Cinema were um, able to um, get behind after many bribes, um, the um, Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS bill, and both of those um, needed financing. So all three of those things needed to be funded. The student loan program uh, forgiveness, um, which I don't think has passed yet, but nonetheless. Um, and so on 8-1, I noticed that um, the quarterly refunding announcement was indicated $840 billion of new issuance happening in the balance of the year. And that was double what I had estimated, which already had been enough to make me think that the false dawn was going to end with some disappointment. And at that point, I went um, completely out of equities and bonds and short both bonds and equities. And though most people look at um, the equity performance subsequent, the equities continued to rally. Um, and ultimately, um, even after Powell made his speech, had a short, very short-term rally that was actually very close to the highs of this whole thing. So for the next three weeks, equities sort of chugged along. But mm. assets started getting killed. Bonds started, as of 8-1, a portfolio of assets, including bonds, gold, commodities, and stocks, actually peaked on 8-1. Didn't peak on the day before the Fed, the day of the, sorry, the day of Jackson Hole. That was only equities that peaked. Everything else started selling off. And so my um, damp spring report at the time suggested that could happen. And then subsequent emails to my clients um, that day um, had me flip from completely long to completely short, including gold and bonds. Um, six twenty. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, Andy. Um, just to give a little context. So, uh, while the equities continued rallying well into essentially the end of August, as you say, uh, interest rates crept higher, mortgage spreads, uh, mortgage rates went higher, and I believe credit spreads uh, went higher as well. Joseph, I, I want to bring you into this uh, conversation. Uh, Andy's talking about the supply of assets, the supply of bonds, uh, the supply of equities, but but mainly the supply of bonds. I know you have uh, been studying this a lot. Uh, you know, I've talked to, uh, uh, listened to a lot of people who I respect, including uh, both of you here, who say that just the amount of issuance that is to come will be tremendous. So I want you to tell us about that, and then also. Talk, tell us about quantitative tightening. Is it true as of September 1st, is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, is the $95 billion cap per month now in place, uh, $60 billion of treasuries and uh, $35 billion of, of mortgage-backed securities? And also, how big of a dislocation do you think that will be? Like Andy mentioned, there, there's going to be a lot of issuance in the coming months. So the increased issuance comes in comes from two sources. One of them is the primary deficit. So the federal government spends more than it receives in tax revenue and it has to make up the difference by issuing debt. So that is 
pretty high. I think it's about 800 billion this year. And going forward, the CBO expects it to be, let's say, over a trillion, basically forever. And as we know how politics is, you know, that's that's just basically what's on the books. In the future, we'll probably have new laws. Maybe there'll be new student loan forgiveness. Maybe there'll be new infrastructure proposals. So going forward, the assets, the asset issuance strictly from just primary deficit is very large. On, on top of that, what we have is, as you noted, Jack, QT. And QT increases the amount of uh, treasury securities and, well, treasury securities that the markets has to hold because what happens, as Andy, Andy mentioned earlier, is that the treasury issues new debt and takes the proceeds to repay the Fed. So at the end of the day, people, investors who are not the Fed, have to hold more treasuries. Now, at a $60 billion a month pace, that's 720. So you add that together, we're getting about a one and a half trillion dollars this year and the next. So that's a tremendous amount of, of uh, assets that the market has to absorb. If you just think back to what things were like before COVID, I think the treasury was issuing about five, 600 billion a year in net issuance. And now we're just doing, you know, 1.5 trillion, like it's no big deal. So that, that's a lot, that's a lot to, to, to absorb. And uh, it's likely that the market will develop, demand some sort of concession. We have to find new marginal buyers and they might need lower prices. That is to say higher yields to come in. And if all those people are buying those treasuries, then there's, that's less money for them to buy other forms of assets. Uh, and that could, as Andy suggested, lead to uh, expansion of risk premium. But so, but this framework, though, this thing, bigger picture, though, we are in a different world, it seems, Andy, where in the past, at least the past 10 years, sometimes we would have people talking about balanced budget, and that would kind of reduce the issuance of, of assets. But we seem to be moving into this brand new world where uh, the supply of assets from the public sector is basically looks to be infinite going forward. How does, how does that affect uh, you know the rest of the market in your framework yeah I mean I think you've um, correctly identified all the things that are happening and it's why um, of that you know uh, the headwind of risk premium expansion um, is blowing very strongly um, and we saw the result um, since eight one, when this uh, this issuance was announced, assets are down. You know, a portfolio of assets are down seven eight hundred basis points at yesterday's lows, and that's a big move. Now the question becomes, like everything, is a strong headwind like that um, generates, and once people are aware of it, and I think Jackson Hole catalyzed those feelings. Um, gets reacted to and gets front run. Um, and the question that when as a trader and as somebody, as an investor with, you know, a not infinite horizon, or a this year horizon is, you know, where are we in that front running overshoot, undershoot dynamic, knowing there's this headwind. And I think, um, when I think about the larger point, which is this um, sort of secular deficit, for one, it, I've only seen one year in my life when um, I could be wrong about this, but I was young and I'm an old guy. If it happened before yeah. this, um, that we ran a surplus, and that was Clinton in '96 uh, or '95, uh, maybe sometime. One year, and so I don't think it's. I don't think it's quite as dire as you say um, in terms of running a deficit. Yeah. Um, my bigger concern regarding government spending is that it appears that it's going to be spent on um, things that don't build wealth. Um, so the number one thing is a duplicate is the chips bill is a great example. Andy and Joseph, if you look at the uh, U.S. Uh, budget deficit or surplus, Andy, uh, you're right. There's only one year of a, of a surplus. Uh, and Joseph, for my entire adult life, as well as for the entire tenure, I believe you were at the Federal Reserve, the U.S. budget deficit was uh, negative and it was growing even more negative. And up until, I don't know, April 2020, 
interest rates kept on falling and falling and falling. So it is possible for budget deficits to be huge and getting even more huge and interest rates to fall. Uh, I think there are other things, the geopolitical thing that Andy was talking about. Um, yeah, uh, Zoltan Pozar talks about how uh, foreign central banks are going to be holding less dollar-denominated assets. That's beyond the scope of this conversation. Um, so I want to really restrict a conversation uh, to which you are a foremost expert in the world, Joseph, which is quantitative tightening and specifically what the Federal Reserve is doing. I'm going to put up a chart of the size, uh, not, me, not of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, but of how much reserves are in the banking system, which I think now is about $3 trillion, maybe a little bit shy of that. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly. Basically, the Fed wants to shrink uh, those, those number of reserves by uh, letting assets like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities roll off and receiving in exchange for that reserve so that the reserves uh, in the banking system are lower. But you write, and I actually didn't know this before reading your piece, um, which, by the way, is on fedguy.com, and the name of it is The Reserve Gap. Uh, that the Federal Reserve wants to keep bank reserves above $2 trillion, or 8% of GDP. So uh, reserves right now are at, uh, you know, they, they peaked just shy of $4 trillion, um, and now they're uh, less than $3 trillion, and the Fed wants them to be smaller, but not smaller than uh, $2 trillion. Uh, and so I guess I want to also ask the question, uh, at what point does the Fed Reserve's need for financial stability uh, get in the way of, of their tightening, uh, tightening monetary conditions in order to stem inflation. And, and then we'll um, we'll look at the chart because uh, the banking system actually says they only need $900 billion, not $2 trillion uh, in reserves. Um, so I, I know I threw, threw a lot out you, but yeah, talk to me about just why uh, this this gap is so important. Yeah, so the, you, you mentioned, you got all the, the big points, Jack. So the Fed wants to shrink their balance sheet, but here's the thing, when they shrink the balance sheet, the level of reserves in the banking system declines, or of course, the level of the RP could also decline. Now, the Fed thinks that the banking system needs a certain minimum level of reserves to function, and they don't really know what that level is. Now, they're afraid that if they shrink the balance sheet uh, a lot and reserves in the banking system fall below a certain level, then something will break. And that's kind of how they perceived what happened uh, in 2019 when the repo market spiked a lot. They thought that the system, the banking system, did not have enough reserves. And at that time, they started to buy a lot of bills to put reserves back in the system. So as they go forward on QT, they're shrinking the balance sheet by, let's say, 95 billion max a month, but they don't actually have control over how the liquidity is drained. It could come out of the RRP or it could come out of the banking system. Now, over the past few months, it, it seems like it's more likely to come out of the banking system than the reverse repo facility. We see that because the RRP balances uh, basically don't change, but the banking system reserve levels have shrank as we see on this graph. Now, the question is, does this place a limit on how far QT can go because if the bank, if the Fed continues QT, and if all the declines come out of the banking system, there, we're going to hit this $2 trillion level that the Fed seems to perceive to be the minimum level uh, far before QT is slated to end uh, in a couple years. Now, the caveat to this is that if you're a bank, you can always top up your own reserve levels. It's very easy to do so. All you have to do is go out and borrow. Um, what would happen, I think, is a bank that needs reserves would borrow from a home loan bank, uh, which in turn would issue debt uh, that a money market fund will buy. And the money market fund will take money out of the RRP, buy the agency security, and the agency and the FHLB will then lend the money to the bank. So the banks can maintain their own reserve levels uh, at the expense of the RRP very easily, but they're not going to do that for the Fed. They're going to do that if they perceive their own levels to be too low. And that's where the gap is. The amount of reserves the banking system thinks it needs is much lower than the level that the Fed thinks it needs. Um, this has to do with how the Fed interpreted the repo event in 2019, as I mentioned. So in 2019, the banks had tremendous levels of reserves. They were dumping it into the repo to earn some extra return over interest on reserves. Um, when QT started to happen, when QT was about to end, they had less cash balances to invest in repo. The people who needed and were dependent upon that money basically blew up. 
but the banks themselves who are lenders in repo and had tremendous amounts of reserves that they didn't really need still were fine. So that's where the gap comes in. Fed saw that the system breaking at around 8% of GDP and thinks that's where the limit is. Now, this suggests that going forward, the Fed is going to have to do something to top up the reserves of the banking system. And they have a lot of tools to do that. Um, the most easiest way, of course, is to just cap the reverse repo facility and force money out of the RP and into the banking system. But I think what would probably happen is that they'll work with the other other authorities, so the Treasury or the other banking regulators to try to do try to top up the banking sector liquidity. Uh, the Treasury has floated out an idea to maybe do sure uh, Treasury buybacks. So what that would do is that would move money out of the RP into the banking sector if they issued bills and purchased off the run coupons. Another thing they could do, another thing the authorities could do would be to modify the regulations, the supplementary leverage ratio in this case, so that it's cheaper for banks to maintain a large balance sheet. If that's the case, then the banks would be more willing to hold more reserves and uh, we could see reserve levels at least stop decreasing. By the way, all this stuff would be easing monetary conditions. Um, if you cap the RRP, you'll have you know short-term interest rates go lower, which is, I mean, marginally loosening financial conditions. If you do a share buyback, what you're doing is you're taking duration out of the markets. Um, you're taking basically uh, securities that are more difficult to digest out and putting securities that are more easy to digest in. And of course, if you modify the SLR, you're basically vastly increasing the capacity of banks to make loans to create credit. So that that's all financial easing. Okay, so there are three pathways the Federal Reserve could do to stem the effects of quantitative tightening. Uh, the uh, first one I think is the easiest to understand is the buyback. They'll issue short-term treasury bills, the treasury will, and buy uh, back longer-term notes and bonds, uh, which are coupon securities and have a higher duration, higher volatility, and as, as you say, are higher to digest. Okay, I get that. Uh, now tell us about the RRP, the reverse repo facility. Uh, there, the Federal Reserve is essentially allowing certain institutions to deposit bank reserves there and get a rate of return that is, you know, highly matches uh, the Fed funds rate. It's a different type of rate. Um, so when you say the Fed during quantitative tightening, it let out assets roll off its balance sheet, and uh, that they some of those assets can be bought by the reverse repo facility, and that would not uh, that would not tighten financial conditions. It's really just about. Um, so you have, let's say in the reverse repo facility, you have someone depositing a hundred billion dollars a day. Okay. That's if the Fed were to say, Hey, actually the maximum amount I'm going to let you deposit here is just 50 billion. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have to take that money and they are going to have to put it elsewhere. And at the end of the day, that money is going to have to end up in the banking sector. So that's a way to just kind of a uh, hard way to just kind of push money out and force it elsewhere. But in what way does that undermine the goal of quantitative tightening, which is to, you know, uh, uh, tighten financial conditions? Um, well, it, it could because what, what happens is that if you have fifty billion dollars that invest and you can't you, you can't put it in the RRP, then odds are you're going to have to be buying bills that yield below the RRP, or you're going to have to invest in reverse repo yielding below the RRP. So that will force short-term interest rates to be uh, significantly lower than the Fed's RRP uh, floor. So you could think of it as, in some sense, a mini rate cut. And I, d I don't know how big the pact would be, but it, it would basically just push down money market rates. Right, but you say it's a really mini cut because the, there's a channel between, yep, yep. right now the channel is 225 to 250 on the federal funds rate. Pretty much all of the action happens there. Yes, there's some instances like a month ago, two months ago, uh, we talked about this with Dan Nielsen, how repo rates go below that. But if the Fed wants to increase interest rates, the most effective way for it to do that is just to increase the Fed funds rate, and all interest rates will sort of some you know will, will kind of follow. Uh, Joseph, I want to ask a, a more fundamental question, and Andy, I want to bring you on this. Is is why does the Fed banking system need so many reserves in the first place? How is it that before the great financial crisis, there was a tiny amount of Federal Reserve banking liabilities, i.e. reserves, in the banking system. And the banking system, you know, worked just fine. I mean, uh, you know, obviously at 2008, and, but, you know, that was for, for 
bad lending stuff and securitization regulation stuff. Uh, it's it's not you know, the banking system worked, but uh, before you had all these reserves, and now we have I don't know you know multiples of so many so many more reserves in the banking system, and yet. Uh, the Fed still thinks that the, the banking system needs $2 trillion. Uh, what's going on here? Joseph, first you and then you, Andy. Uh, basically, the government forced them to do it. <laughs> so once upon a time, in pre-GFC, if a bank, if they had extra extra cash, what they would do was they would sell it in the federal funds market. And you can think of this as basically depositing it at another bank. So if, if I'm JP Man, JPM, I have $10 billion left over, I lend it in the federal funds market, it's basically like I'm depositing it at another bank. And that worked well, except for the fact that when you have a banking crisis, you have counterparty risk. And so that money you had deposited at another bank, maybe that's not going to be there. And if that's not going to be there, then maybe you yourself have solvency issues. And so the Fed well, the regulators wanted to get rid of this uh, counterparty risk, and so they forced them from then on, if they have liquidity, they must hold it at the Fed, with the Fed as counterparty. And the Fed, of course, will not go bankrupt, so it's a much safer system that that well. And th that's one part. The other part is they have to hold a lot more liquidity, and that has to do with the various Basel regulations that, that force them to increase the amount of liquidity they have to hold tremendously. Joseph, okay, okay, I, I get that. Sorry, I, I, I get that. So that's that should be a better system, right? The the counterparty, there is no counterparty risk because the Federal Reserve will always have your back. So why is it that you still have these repo blowups like in 2019 and you know potentially what is to come? Oh, okay. Well, I, I think what happens is that the financial system just expands to take takes up all the liquidity that, that that there is. So when you put extra liquidity in the system, in the beginning, it looks like it's excess, but you know that gets put to work somewhere. And at the end of the day, what is what was excess becomes less so. So if you think back to what happened during the last round of QT, all the excess liquidity that the banking system was held was actually invested in reverse repo. So that's what the banks did. And from the bank's perspective, you know that's fine because I have all the money that I need. I'm just going to take all these extra money and put it somewhere else. Uh, the thing is, someone that someone else becomes dependent upon that steady flow of money from the banks. So what was extra in the beginning was actually used up by, uh, let's say, the hedge fund community in their basis rates. And so when you start to take it away, the people who are dependent upon those flows uh, suddenly, you know, they get hit and they have to cover. And that's what results in dislocation. Now, this time around, the, the extra cash in the banking system was basically lent to the government through treasury purchases. So that's probably where the weak points are if you were to think that the markets that benefited from QE would be hurt by QT. Joseph thinks, and I think you know, other people like Zoltan Pozar thinks that interest rates have to go way up because there's just so much more supply of uh, fixed income than there is capacity if, on the commercial banks to to handle it. Um, but uh, you take the view that, yes, you're not at all constructive on stocks and risk assets, but that this this forward environment might not be that all too bad for bonds, even though sort of bonds are at the sort of the eye of the storm. So can you can you share your outlook on bonds at this juncture? Yeah, let me, let me talk about my outlook. So since 8-1, um, we had this major repricing in assets of all sorts. Gold fell, stocks fell, um, catalyzed by um, um, Powell's statement, um, and bonds have sold. And so I was short, and I covered all of them. Everything I, everything I was short, I covered. And that's because, again, this is a flow, a headwind that I observed on 8-1 that'll be with us for an extended period of time and will have a effect of a headwind. It'll keep assets capped. Um, lots of people talk about the Fed put. I consider the current world to just be the Fed sold a call to the market and that will cap and damp, damper um, the upside to assets. And so, you know, I'm, I'm flattish now. I'm long a little bit of bonds. I'm long a little bit of stock, but really very, very low risk right now because we've had this major repricing and we've had this very strong headwind. And now I need to see the effect on the economy to understand. And so ideally, we get a rally on some for some reason I can get short again, or we reprice assets a lot more so they become adequately oversold relative to this headwind. 
Um, but we don't know how that's going to play out. And um, and then when you think about which asset to own, we have to see how um, you know inflation expectations are just anchored as could be. And you know, to me, that's a risk to bonds that inflation expectations are just too anchored and might need a little scare. But you know, a couple of days from now, we probably get a pretty negative inflation print. And high inflation expectations will look silly. Um, but if the Fed continues on its path to um, kill inflation, even if it is stickier than most expect, um, and has the impact on weakening growth, um, despite the supply issue, causing risk premium expansion, causing this headwind for risk premium expansion, the other drivers of bond prices will end up attracting buyers, which is falling inflation and falling um, and falling growth. And I don't know what that price will be, what the clearing price will be. I do know there will be a clearing price, um, that there'll be a place where people will lever up to buy bonds. Is it at 4% 10-year or 2.5% 10-year, that'll de be dependent not on this headwind, which I get is going to blow for a year or two, but on the supply headwind, but um, will depend on the, out the economic outcome. And if we have a very low growth environment for an extended period of time, bonds will be attractive and stocks won't be. So yeah. I think we, I think that, you know, this classic at this moment, at you know, we're having a massive rally in the stock market today. Um, with this, at this moment, stocks seem about right, bonds seem about right, and you know, I'm happy I'm long a little bit of both because I thought think we got oversold, but I'm not making any big bets today. Um, I'm just looking at those headwinds and those economic effects, and I think we have, you know. A, to pay attention to that for an, a fairly extended time before we actually see a big break to one or the other direction in equities or bond prices for the for the near, over the next three to six months. Mm. Uh, thanks for that, Andy, for for giving a rough sketch of your current outlook on asset prices. Uh, if folks want additional details and you know in in your reports on on sizing allocation and how to put trades on, as well as the rationale in depth of of what you're thinking, uh, they definitely should uh, check out uh, your report, the Damp Spring Report. My final question for you both is. Uh, we've gone. Uh, we've, we've talked all about quantitative tightening. We haven't talked about the rate situation, but uh, that's what I want to ask you about now. Uh, it's pretty much been a soft confirmed uh, that the Federal Reserve will hike 75 basis points in September. Maybe I'm being a little too uh, aggressive by using the word confirmed, but uh, you know Nick Timoros, he has a pretty good track record. Um, but the the terminal rate in Fed funds is still about like 3.9 percent. Um, and you know, a lot of people say it's going to be one percent because there's going to be a giant deep recession. A lot of people saying, <laughs> "Screw four percent, six percent." I want to ask what both of you think. Uh, you, know, Andy, you talked about bonds, sort of the longer out in the curve, but on the shorter end, in terms of just how uh, high or low interest rates uh, will be for the Fed funds, uh, what is your outlook and why? Uh, Andy, you first, and then Joseph. So I'm um, I'm not only just higher for longer. Um, I'm higherer for longerer, um, nice. and so six uh, percent seems out of the question for me. But higherer for longerer than is currently priced. I am higherer for shorterer <laughs> because I. So I think that's Andy. What Andy's saying is is the right choice if they wanted to get inflation under control. They'd have to rate higher and they'd have to hold it for longer. And that's their experience from the seventies, right? In the back in the seventies and eighties, they cut too quickly and inflation came back. But I think the way that from from what I see is that this is often a decision that's dependent upon the politics and culture of our time. And when I look at the FOMC. I see people who are very concerned about unemployment, and there seems to be many people who are not willing to make any trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And that my 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 insight to this is just from the minutes the last time. Even though we have inflation very high, unemployment very low, and the Fed funds rate very low, we had many people who seemed to be concerned about over tightening. So I think from here on to the end of the year, it's very easy what the Fed will do. 
And the open question is whether or not when we actually do get a slowdown in, in the economy, when we actually do have unemployment take up, will they quickly cave into their fears and thus either pause or start cutting rates? And this Fed seems to be very, very much weighing the trade-off between unemployment and inflation towards valuing lower unemployment. And if that's the case, then we'll have to probably keep rates lower and we'll have higher inflation. So um, when do you think they cut or at least pause? Yeah, you know, I would say when we start getting deteriorating economic data, especially employment data, looks like we're fine right now, but maybe say the second quarter of next year, maybe we could have some deterioration by then. then that I think that's the real test. What do you do when you actually have to make this hard trade-off? Right now, it's it's just easy, and everyone's on board, even the biggest jobs. And so, you know, are you sort of late late twenty twenty three cut or into twenty twenty four? No, I would say we could. So it does depend on the economic data involves. I could say middle of let's say middle of twenty twenty three. It does seem like we are globally in a slower economy, especially if you look at what's happening in Europe and in China, that, that's going to drag on the U.S. a bit, at least. Well, so Joseph, that's pretty close to what the Fed Fund's futures market is signaling about, about when the Fed will be. Yeah, I used to think the futures market was really wrong. Now I think they're less wrong. It, it's not, it's not- it was wrong, Joseph. You were right. It was wrong. You were right. But. <laughs> it was, <laughs> uh, it was, it's not unreasonable for them to, to think that. I mean, Powell has very shown everyone that he's very flexible and he has pivoted strongly in the past. So, you know, he, uh, he does what he says, what he has to say right now, and maybe facts would change. Mm. Joseph, what about by uh, the end of December? You think 375 or 4, 4%? Uh, it looks like we have to do another 150, right? So, you guess, you know, something like that. So, that, that sounds, I think that's pretty consensus and that's really easy. Whether or not we do 75 or 50 the next meeting doesn't really matter. The end point is around there, as you suggested, Jack, by December. Right. Well, wonderful. Uh, Joseph, Andy, thank you so much. Uh, folks should definitely check your, your workout. Uh, Andy, your Twitter handle is Damp Spring, and you, you write the Damp Spring Report. Joseph, on Twitter, you are at FedGuy12, and people should definitely check out your writings uh, on FedGuy.com, as well as your book, Central Banking 101. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. Pleasure. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. 